Hello, and welcome to the Green Book Commentaries. I'm Dr. Arthur Plessa. Episode 21, Morat's Physiology of the Nervous System. In our previous episode, we concluded our fifth installment of Speransky's research. With over 70 pages dedicated in Volume 25 to his work, it's safe to say BJ really found the results of great value and in direct alignment with the chiropractic principle. In summary, Speransky was the first medical researcher to study in depth the role of the nervous system in the pathological process. Up to the time of his research, and even in today's time, the theory of the cause of disease was and is predominantly the microbe. What I, have, what I found fascinating about his research was that every condition he studied was debunked of previous thoughts of its pathological mechanisms because Speransky found that the nervous system is what allowed the process to develop. Can you see now why BJ dedicated so many pages of volume 25 to this special work? If the underlying cause of disease can be found within a nervous system, then chiropractic becomes the only profession qualified to provide professional service. Why? Chiropractic is the only profession that adjusts the cause and restores innate blueprint for normal function. As we close the pages of one great medical researcher, we open the pages of another. Dr. Jean-Pierre Morat lived from 1846 until 1920. He was a French physiologist who undertook studies in the sympathetic nervous system. Along with Dr. Daster, he developed the Daster-Morat law. This law described the opposing effects between capillaries of the body surface and internal vessels. He is also credited in the field of surgery for introducing a process of administering morphine and atropine prior to anesthesia. We begin our reading in volume 25, page 204. Physiology of the Nervous System by J.P. Morat of the University of Lyons, authorized English edition, translated and edited by H.W. Sires, M.A., M.D., physician to the Great Northern Central Hospital, published by W.T. Keener and Company, Chicago, Illinois, 1906. Preface. In every living being, A double current of matter and energy is present, running in a definite direction which never varies. In these two currents, the transformations of energy accompany those of matter. They are sometimes united, sometimes separated, and in their union is is the starting point of a cycle of which their separation emphasizes the termination. The cycle is the simplified, simplified image of vital evolution and in it the first traces of organization are sketched out. 
but in proportion as this cycle becomes complicated and elaborated, we may observe the advent of fresh cycles more or less resembling it, which, su which superpose themselves, interfere with, and bestow upon it a new value. Innervation corresponds to a cycle of this nature. In fact, while the material and energetic currents proceed from the ingesta to the excreta, through the intestines and the vessels, a third and an incomparably weaker current, that of the nerves, finds for itself distinct and separate channels, and intervenes for the regulation of the two former, ensuring for them their most effectual employment. The nervous system does not provide force, it utilizes it, and this duty devolves on it by reason of the perfection of its own organization. It is the nervous system which decides at what moment the energy accumulated by the living being shall be liberated. In other words, shall leave matter and exert its motor functions. This point it decides with the assistance of information communicated by the organs of the senses, and by means of a sometimes extremely lengthy work of internal elaboration brought to bear on this information arriving from the exterior. In short, by the disturbances entering into it, the nervous system receives impressions from the external world of which thus obtains knowledge. By its own activity, it forms a judgment of all surrounding it from the point of view of utility. Finally, it reveals this judgment by a motor act calculated to ensure the preservation of the organism. Such is the cycle of the nervous current. It implies successively an external phenomenon of impression, an internal phenomenon of sensation, another external phenomenon of motor response to the impression, itself followed by another internal phenomenon or sensation registering the accomplished movement. In the nervous system, all movement induces sensation. All sensation induces movement. This system, among its most extraordinary attributes, possesses a power of adjournment concerning the events of depending upon it. These events, which on a reduced scale and in a condition of representation or images, it constructs internally with the data furnished by the senses. It preser preserves until an appropriate moment arrives for, for partially realizing them in the form of external movements. From the fact of the introduction of sensation into the cycle unrolled in the nervous system, events assume for it a particular significance which otherwise they would not possess. According to the effective tonality, agreeable or painful, of the sensation, they are either favorable or the reverse. Obviously, and in spite of the errors which it may commit, the living being seeks the former and avoids the latter. Whether its activity is free to choose or whether it is enclosed in an inflexible determinism, is a problem which is not the province of physiology to inquire into. But whether rigid or elastic, 
This determinism includes a new element and factor, sensibility, which outside of the living being is either wanting or at all events is not apparent. The relation between cause and effect, which elsewhere seems too simple, which elsewhere seem too simple, seems so simple, are here on the on this account extremely complicated and modified. The power possessed by the living being, and more especially by the nervous system, of the internal preservation of external events, by their reduction to the condition of representations, and of their later realization and enlargement in the form of visible movements, conveys to us the false impression that the end and aim of an act is the cause of this act. The cause of an act cannot be in the future, but may be in the memory of a previous act of the same nature, remembered as being either useful or hurtful, and which on this account determines the direction given to the movement. There must always be an aim, a general or particular tendency determined by the sensory nature of the living being, but this aim is an effect and not a cause. The past always involves the future, but in this past the living being knows now to choose, and when it recreates it does so as much as may be to its own advantage, whence its almost indefinite degree of perfectibility. Thus we can see that the study of physiology gives rise to, or at any rate borders on, problems which are not in any way its special province, and for the rest demands from psychology solutions which the latter seeks for with the aid of its own methods. A kind of neutral area common to both sciences exists which the former endeavors to appropriate by pushing further back the boundaries separating it from the latter. Progress must inevitably be slow, as apart from the fact of this study bristling with difficulties of every kind, methods, in spite of the efforts of a host of inquiries, still remain crude and unsuited to the infinite delicacy of the organs, of the nervous system, and their component elements. Innervation. In the living being, all the phenomena appertaining to crude matter are observable, but the converse does not hold good. It is obvious that a being endowed with life possesses characteristics and prevents manifestations for which in dead matter we can find no parallel, and the most marked feature distinguishing the one from the other is that of sensibility. Here is brought before our notice a fact of purely internal nature, eluding observation as it is generally understood in science, but which common sense constrains us to attribute to being resembling ourselves, while at the same time denying it to all objects in which this resemblance cannot be discerned. Sensibility and Energy This attribute, sensibility, cannot in the living being act as a substitute for the energetic phenomena of matter. It is merely super, superposed to these phenomena and connected with them by a double reciprocal link. They preside over it 
in the sense that a subject gifted with feeling must of necessity require an object to be felt. And, on the other hand, sensibility exercises a control over these phenomena of energy, inasmuch as, though incapable of modifying them as a whole, it can still regulate and control them in their execution of functions directed towards an end, of which the living being itself is conscious. This reciprocal link not only controls the relations of the living being with all surrounding objects, it is also, and simultaneously, the distinctive feature of its organization. In its development, as much ontogenetical as phylogenetical, it is the living being which is at once both artificer and final cause. From this double link, so frail in itself and yet so intimate, proceeds the unity of being endowed with life. And in this organism, where each part depends on the whole, and the whole on each part, a synthesis is effected which confers upon it its individuality. This prodigy of complexity is also a prodigy of unity. Sensibility and Determinism A science having for aim the study of a being so constituted should never lose sight of this double character, of more and more especially when appealing to the methods and general principles of other sciences dissociated and brought back to the crude state of common matter, the primary elements constituting the, constituting the living being reveal to us in their reactions the same inflexible constancy that characterizes the laws known as physico-chemical, yet associated in the individual. Their grouping and organization display the infinite variety and contingency whence individuality is derived. How can this proceed from that? How can that which is invisible in the element become apparent in the whole? To these questions we can find no answer, but in science as elsewhere, it is always imprudent to run foul of the information given by common sense, and a problem is not solved when one of its terms has been omitted. The mind, desirous of being logical, is in fact at first offended by this contrast, and endeavors to annihilate it by evading one of the two points of view. The rigid determinism of purely energetic sciences has been transported without restriction or selection into biological science. In the past, and even at the present time, physiology has overlooked and still overlooks the fact of the being which it studies possessing sensibility, and has in every case refused to acknowledge this sensibility as a causal or conditioning influencing conditioning influence in the determinism of vital phenomena. It has carefully arranged the balance sheet of the forces of the organism, while taking no interest in the function which regulates their employment. At physical, as physical science finds no place for sensibility, neither has physiology accorded it one. The time seems to have arrived for a reaction 
against these exaggerations. In the living being, just as movement depends on sensation, so does sensation depend on movement. In both cases, the nature of the link is unknown to us. But nevertheless, does this link exist? And is in biology the foundation of all that distinguishes it from pure physics? Sensibility and organization. In the living world, sensation presents extremely varied degrees, and its development proceeds on a, par on a line parallel with that of the organization itself. It is only strongly marked in beings provided with this differentiated system, known as the nervous system. It increases in importance and elaboration with the progressive development, phylogenetical and ontogenetical, of this system. In such beings, of whom we ourselves form a class, a division of attributes is effected between the tissues, some of these employing the efficient energies which take part in the execution of organic actions, while another, the nervous tissue, watches over this employment, coordinating and regulating it. This latter is preeminently the sensory tissue and is in a high degree both excitable and capable of causing excitation. It is this tissue which receives the stimulation and returns it, but transformed by the process through its paths. And again, it is this tissue which ensures the reciprocal dependence and subordination of the elements to the whole, and the whole to the elements, and so confers on the organism its individuality, its unity. Excitability and Sensibility All living matter is excitable, or to put it otherwise, it responds to actions directed against it by an expenditure of the special energy which it constantly accumulates internally. Expenditure of the special energy which it constantly accumulates internally. Sorry about that. This motor reaction is never haphazard, but, and this fact is demonstrated by experiment, is always directed with the definite aim of preservation of life in the substance stimulated. Excitability is therefore not merely a motor manifestation, but is duplicated by an internal fact of rudimentary consciousness. It should therefore be considered as either a degraded form or a first rough sketch of sensation. The elaborated organization of these superior animals, by giving to it its highest development, permits of our analyzing the conditions of its existence. Fundamentally, these conditions are everywhere the same. They are located in the links of reciprocal dependence of the portions composing the organism. The more simple and homogeneous is the latter, so much the more do its reasonable resemblance so much do so much the more do its reactions resemble those of ordinary movement and so much the farther are they removed from those which characterize genuine sensibility. But in proportion, as the organism is complex and differentiated, it much the more, so much the more will its movements possess the contingent characteristics of sensible and intelligent beings. Action and reaction.
In other words, the living being reacts against actions reaching it from the external world, and in so doing obeys a general, universal, and indeed fundamental law, one of the first inscribed in the physical code, a law obedience to which no living body in nature can escape. Only from the fact of organization itself, this law has assumed a new character of which it may be said that it implies in the living being a, res a remembrance of the past and a provision of the future. The more elevated is the organization, the more prominently does this character stand forth. On the other hand, the nearer we approach the purely physical elements entering as compounds into this organization, so much the more is this character effaced, nothing being left but the simple reaction strictly and solely answering to the action of the present moment. Vital reaction, practically so different from the physical reaction, proceeds from it by successive halting places and elaborations, just as the living being itself is evolved from progressively organized crude matter. Division. The nerve tissue is, like all other tissues, originally formed of cells. But while other cellular structures are usually merely composed of duplica duplicated or juxtaposed elements, it, thanks to the connections established between its component parts, displays a genuine syst systemization. Its study may therefore be carried on from two different points of view. One, in which the functions common to all its elements are considered cellular functions. The other, in which the functions special to the groups or systems formed by these elements are taken into account systematic functions. In the study of nerve tissue, the distinction between these, between these two orders of functions is a fundamental one, and the obscurity still enveloping numerous questions connected with this study is partly due to the fact that this distinction being so frequently ignored. The first of these studies completes the history of the cellular functions arranged in unison with the principal types of living elements. The second permits our penetration into the aggregate function to which the mutual association of these elements gives rise, and it is in the nervous system that we shall find the connection where these aggregations are brought into being and their functions organized. The study of the nervous system is a kind of nodal point in the exposition of physiological science. Thank you for joining me for another episode. I'm Dr. Arthur Plessa. This has been the Green Book Commentaries.